The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the third chapter. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is the Gospel of our Lord. So as we said earlier that uh, Trinity Sunday, and today we're going to be spending most of this time, uh, just my part of the time, looking at this book and this message that we're given from the church about um, Isaiah. <clears throat> So it starts off with a king being mentioned, a King Uzziah. This king actually had a different name. There were another name that we also use in the Bible. His other name would have been Azariah. This king was about started around 792 B.C. and he ended his role as a king around 740 B.C. So the further away you get from zero going in the other direction, it gets larger. So he started off here at 792 and he ended at about 740 and part of the important thing for us to get out of this is remembering where we're at in the world is that earthly kings, no matter how great they are, how big they are, how famous they are, no matter how much part of this world that they touch, they have a beginning and they have an end. And what we're going to see with this Isaiah is that he's going to be coming in front with a king that has no beginning and end. So it starts off with this reference. So it puts you into time about Isaiah. But the next part of that is to remind you that we have starts and finishes, but God's outside of that. In the very next piece, he's in the presence of God. But it starts off with that. Get ready. Here comes Isaiah's approach to the Lord. The next thing we find out is now he finds out that he's in the... He's just not in heaven, on the edge of heaven. He's in heaven, and he's like right there in the presence of the fathers in a very close proximity. 
And the first thing that he notices is that he's, he's almost like speechless. I mean, imagine there's been times when um, I've had some friends, and, and maybe this works out in a couple, three weeks, we'll get to be in Mexico at a place where there's a wall. It's a scuba diving place. So when you're in Cozumel and you go out towards the east, it starts off shallow and it gets deeper and deeper until you get around 80 feet. And all of a sudden, it just drops. And you cannot see the bottom. And people who talk about this, they, they experience it. They, they, they lose a sense of where they are and who they are and what's going on. If they didn't have gauges, they wouldn't know whether they're going up or down. They have no sense of any boundaries. They're just lost in this depth and vastness. And they almost say it's like terrifying and it's almost speechless to them. And they try to describe it. They say, I'm going to stop talking about it. You just need to go experience it. Some things that you see and hear in the, in the Bible, they're too big for us. If we can get a glimpse of God's creation and how that can make, make us speechless, how much more so the presence of God. Another example could be like Grand Canyon or being at 35,000 feet and watching the sunrise come over a continent of Africa or something like that. There's certain things you, you, I can try to use words all day long and it just doesn't work. This guy, um, Isaiah, he's in the presence of God and he's going to start talking about it. But we're not going to get it. Um, he talks about the... Um, the edge of his robe. You know, just the edge. It's not a very big piece of this whole robe. If you think about the robe I wear, it's right here. This is the edge. When Isaiah talks about God, the first thing he says is just the edge of his robe is covering everything, the throne. It's just a piece of his garment. He's not even talking about the person of God, the presence of God. Just a piece of his garment is covering, it's covering everything. And in that place, then imagine how much more the loftiness, the grandeur, the elevation, the highest and the most holy of gods, how much more that is. He's seen it. He's experiencing it. And he tells us just the hem of his robe is the fullness of this temple. And then after you get through there, you get into the servants in this little lesson. Cool thing about these servants is, if you think about the Ark of the Covenant, there was a cherubim on each side, gold-covered cherubim to watch over the contents, which was the law of God and these things that kept in the Ark. Well, here in the throne of God, you have servants circling around. There are cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. There are seraphim circling around and in the presence of God. Servants, there is an order to God's creation. Ask all the scientists in the world. They know that there's an order. There's a structure. There's a connectivity. And it's not random. There's not a lot of random here. It's, there is a reason and a purpose, and there's a connectivity to this world. And he's seeing it. There is a God, and there's all these different pieces. And these just have the role of circling God and serving the Lord. A rank and an order. And these servants can do nothing but utter basic words when they're in this presence of God. It reflects their experience. It kind of makes sense to us when we're in our word and we're going from day to day or when we're watching things on TV. When you see, when you see a, a movie and they see like, oh, here comes a tidal wave and almost the people in the movie, whether they've been godless people in the movie or whether they're Christians in the movie, either way, their expression is, oh my God. They're just overwhelmed with what's going on. They have a response to that sort of thing. It just happens. Even the people that don't know God say that because they still know there's a God. They just don't live close to him. Well, in here, when the seraphim are in the presence of God, they can only utter one thing. The greatness of God for whom they're called to be there and they're in the presence of this God day and night, even though they're in that place all the time, still the only thing that they can come out of their mouths is holy, holy, holy. 
is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. That's the only thing they can say. When they find themselves and live themselves in the presence of God, that's all they can express is the holiness, the magnitude, the awesomeness, the great the radiance of God's power and love and light. And then if you notice in there, why would they use this blessing on, on Holy Trinity Sunday? How many times did they say holy? Three. They're saying holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. One God. Three holies. There is one, and they say three. Even the seraphim in the Old Testament and Isaiah saw it. Holy Trinity. And then next what happens is you hear a spoken word of God and it says that the foundation shook. When the foundations of heaven shake, it's God's word. Think about God's word we have in the book of Genesis. He speaks and everything that we can see, the stars and the moons and everything in the gaps that we can't see, it's just, it explodes into existence. Creative power made it happen with just a word. With just a word, the oceans are teeming with life. With just the Spirit of God breathing on, they're filled with life. Just the Word of God. He speaks, and there is. This God speaks. Isaiah is there to listen to it, and the heavens just shake. He's rattling it all, the power of God. There's not very many of us that can do things to make to shake the world. Maybe if we slam the door, the pictures might shake. God whispers, and His creation trembles from the foundations of it all that we don't even understand, to the heights. He speaks. His power is beyond our ideas. Next thing Isaiah says, or happens, is he realizes who he is and where he is, and he says a word, woe is me. Now, onomatopoetic is the title for this word. There's a, yeah, forgive me, if, who's in here is an English major, an English people? You've got some English, so we got a hand up over here. Any, anybody else in here who just fancies the idea that they know the English language well? I butchered the, butchered the word, but onomatopoetic. What kind of a word is that? There's a special that, that describes something in the English language. Can you remember what that? On, it's a sound word. All right. It expresses what it sounds. The definition of the word is expressed by the way it sounds. Here's an example. Oh! O-H. It expresses what it sounds. Or, ouch! Right? You can spell it, but it, it, the sound expresses it's spelling. How about this? Uh. Right? U-G-H. There's a sound to that, but it expresses. Um, hmm. It's another example. Whoa. It's not something you do on the reins of the horse. Slow them down. It's not what you say when you do that. Almost the same thing. You say, whoa, because you don't want to die. Sometimes that's the case because the horse is going. But you say, whoa. And that special Hebrew word, it almost is like saying, I'm dead. I'm done. I'm over. I'm finished. Period. Whoa. The end is there and I'm in it. He realizes that he's a sinful person. He talks about his lips. I'm a, I'm a man of with unclean lips. 
Well, your mouth is generally is just expressing what's going on in your heart, in your soul. You get people trash-talking God, what's being reflected? It's reflecting their heart and their soul. You got people saying things, hateful things. If they say loving things and kindness things, it's just a reflection. When he says, I have unclean lips, basically he's saying from my lips to the core of my being, what I am saying is being expressed and it is not clean. And then he says, I come from a people of unclean lips. How much more? I'm born into it. Generation after generation and everybody around me, we have unclean lips. We have unclean spirits. We have unclean souls. We are in this place. And now... I am one of them, and I'm not in that place with them. I'm in the presence of God near His throne so much that I can't even see the heights of Mike and to see the hem of His robe. Whoa, I'm a dead man. Because nothing, darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. It's, it's just the way it is. And he realizes he's in trouble. Like he's never experienced trouble before. On earth, he couldn't, people can't get into the holy places of the temple unless they've demonstrated holiness and gone through forgiveness and confession and prepared to go into holy places. He's now, boom, he's there. Whoa. Then what happens in that place is someone comes to his rescue. One of the servants of God, the seraphim, go to the altar of God where God just, his energy is just, he's like on, we saw the burning bush with Moses. It was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Here we have this altar of stuff and it's on fire with the presence of God, but it is not consumed. It's burning day and night. And he goes and he takes one of those, 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 those coals and he comes across and he touches him in the mouth. Have you ever been touched by a big coal? That's one of those words. Sounds the way it feels. What a beautiful thing this is. The same power and life and love and cleansing that is found in God is in that coal. It's like the same. Think about it. He's given us a glimpse of the nature of who Jesus is. The fullness of God, the fullness of his life and his power, his creative, his knowledge, his light, everything that God is, is now in a human flesh. As much as God was in that cold touching him, we can have Jesus in the flesh touching us. And more than that, he gives us his body and his blood and we remember it in the sacrament. For us, this is not a remembrance. When we take this bread and we take this wine, we are taking God in as much as that coal was touching his mouth. And we're being made alive. And we're being made forgiven and brought renewed, if you will. The guilt is removed. Not very often we think about guilt. Most of the time when I ask this early church, what does guilt mean? Most of the time the folks were saying something about feelings of sorrow or regret, remorse. That's not guilt. Guilt is the fact, the reality, and the um, evidence that you did something wrong. You did a crime. That's guilt. That's your guilt. If you're guilty, it's because they've shown you all this evidence. The guilt is there. It's the, it is the evidence of it that you did something wrong. It says that the guilt is going to be removed. And it talks about the next thing, that sin is going to be atoned for. Think about the definition of sin. If you were to try to find what sin is, what would you say? You've been in church all these years. You've got some definitions. What's the definition of sin? Something's wrong. What else? Disobedience. Disobedience. What else is sin? Transgressions. Evil. What? Breaking commandments. Here's a thought. Sin is anything 
that separates you from somebody else or separates you from God. That's what it does. There might be different ways you achieve it, but what sin is, is it separates. That's what sin does. It separates you. If I sin against you, I've separated myself from you. If I sin against my parents, I've separated myself from my parents. I've hurt them and I've caused a division. If I sin against God, I've broken his heart, I've broken his commands, and I've separated myself from him. It is the most horrible thing we can possibly do is to sin. And it says in here, when he's been touched by this coal, when we've been touched by the love of God in Christ Jesus, when we've been touched by the Holy Spirit, we are no longer guilty. The evidence of our sin is gone. The things that have separated us from each other is gone, and it is atoned for. The word atonement, here's some really ideas with this. To be healed, the sins are compensated for, the errors are made up for, the brokenness is amended for, you are repaired, and you are paid for, atoned. All of those things Everything that separated us and the evidence of that is cleansed with the touch of God, holiness, from his altar, in this case, with the, with the coal. Beautiful stuff in this book of Isaiah in just a few words. Now, the one, now, after this has happened, he's in the presence of God. He realizes who he is and who he's not. He's experiencing as much as a human could take all this in. Then he's sinful. Now he's been freed and healed. What's the next thing that happens? He's able to hear. How is it that he, he couldn't have heard God really speaking before? He knew he was thundering and stuff, but here he finally hears the voice of God. How is it that people in the world can live a life apart from God and then show up on one day and make decisions for God on behalf of a church? They can't. You've got to be close to God the whole time through. That's why in us we're focusing on knowing God. You've got to get close to God. He has been close to God, and now he's been restored by God's holiness to, to a place where he can hear it. And in this place, he's hearing it, and what he hears is God saying, Who will I send? The thunderous God is asking about us. Who will he send to us? His children. Who will go for us? There's a cool thing about the Trinity again. The oneness of God in this temple, his robe and all of this, the oneness of God, who will I send? The very next sentence is, that's singular, the very next sentence is plural. Who will go for us? The three holies. It's happening right here in the Trinity in the Old Testament. The same things we, we stress in the New Testament is right there. God and us. Plural. God's doing the words. He's doing the talking on this one. It's beautiful stuff. One God speaking in plural. Isaiah is in the presence of God. He has now known God. He's heard God, seen God, felt God, experienced God, been healed and atoned for by God. Now, the very next thing he hears is who's going to go to them? Who's going to make me known to them? He needs someone to be sent. And Isaiah, you know... He didn't have to think about it. Hmm. I wonder which one of these seraphim will go down. Or which one of the angels will go down. He didn't have to sit there and think about the pros and the cons of making this decision. He didn't have to think about how much is it going to cost and what's my ROI, my return on investment on this. None of that went through his head. He is that close to the Lord. He's filled with his love and his goodness and his light and his life. He's got all that going on. And he now sees the same need that the father sees. All these people that don't know. And he says, I'm the one. Send me. 
Here I am. He's like jumping up in the temple of God. I'll do it. It was an immediate response. Having been that close to the Father, there was only one thing good to do. Father, send me. I'll go to them. Knowing the Holy Trinity of God leads with a heart for what God has a heart for, which is bringing all of God's kids home. Remember this lesson every Sunday in a little way here. Isaiah did all he could do. He did more than any other that's remembered by the New Testament authors. I think Isaiah is quoted more as New Testament composers of the Old Testament than anybody else. But he met a limit. He's just a guy. 740 years later in the fullness of time, God the Father in heaven sends His only begotten Son. His Son says, Here am I. It's time. I'll go. Sin's not blotted out like it was with Isaiah, just touched on the lips and kind of like one time event. When Jesus comes, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, is going to atone for sin for all people for all time, one event on the cross. He sets it free forever on the cross. Not just a one time event for Isaiah, but now for all people, all time. 773 years later, just a little bit at the end of Jesus' ministry, Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and goes out to the church. Think about it. The power of God, the same power that was in that coal that touches lips, the same power, that voice that shakes the engines, the same power of life and love and goodness and forgiveness and blessing, all that God is, is now coming to the church in the Holy Spirit. It is breathed upon this body of Christ, this church, you and me. We are the followers. And it's to enter us. It's to penetrate. It's to permeate through us. We breathe it in. We breathe it out. We like swim in it. There's no separation. We are surrounded by this Holy Spirit of God. How often do we think of ourselves as small and weak and vulnerable? My goodness. What are we thinking? If we have the essence of God's Holy Spirit in us, the gates of hell won't prevail. Death has been lost. Sin has been lost. Be the people of God. Time for being small and worried about the world is over. Thinking of the grandeur of who God is, think about what we have received when we receive the Spirit of God inside these dirt temples. We are powerful, and that is, the devil doesn't want us to ever think how powerful we are. We're not powerful because of us, we're empowered because of God that is in us. The Holy Trinity Sunday. It's the beginning of a church season. A Pentecost season. And it compels all who hear this today to live, to be free, to know of God's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, to know this fruit of the Spirit, to receive it fully. And then from that place, with God's thoughts in your thoughts and with God's visions in your eyes and God's words in your ears, from that place, do the only thing that you can do is share that goodness with somebody else. Starting with the people who are closest to you and then to the people at the ends or sides of the earth. We've just begun a season. It's game time. This is game time. We have everything needed, all the training, and God is within us with His Spirit. This is game time. 
God help us to know Him more every day, every way, more and more. And then God help us to make Him known the way He chooses us to do it. Amen.